You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Hello and welcome to the City of Man podcast. My name is Coyle Neal. I'm an associate professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, is America great because it's good? Uh, I don't know how many people these days know uh, who that quote is attributed to, but everybody seems to believe some version of the sentiment behind it. Uh, whether because America used to be great and can be made great again, to, to reference one former president, uh, or because America has the potential for greatness, if only we would realize it, to reference another former president. Uh, and at first glance, this would seem to have to be true in a democracy. Uh, after all, would we want rule by the people if people at bottom are genuinely terrible? To help us reflect on the ways the Founding Fathers, Alexis de Tocqueville, and prominent members of the second generation of Americans, people like Andrew Jackson, uh, thought about the quality of the American character, uh, joining us on the show today is Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie, the Arthur F. Holmes Chair of Faith and Learning and Professor of History at Wheaton College, uh, where he lives with his wife of 36 years, Robin, uh, and where he attends Cross of Christ Fellowship. Uh, and author of the book that we're talking about today, We the Fallen People, the Founders and the Future of Democracy. Uh, Dr. McKenzie, welcome to the show. Coyle, it's my pleasure to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I, I, if I just, just to make sure I get this said, this book is fantastic. Thank you so much for writing this. Uh, I will encourage all of our listeners to go out and pick it up. Uh, I'm... Uh, I'm sure there's there's a part of you that that's like, look, why why won't people just read Tocqueville and the founders themselves? Uh, but they won't, uh, at least if if my classes are any indication, uh, they, they won't. Uh, so I, I appreciate you kind of bringing all of that together in this in this text. Uh, it really is a great book, and I, I do encourage our listeners to to go pick them up. Uh, let's uh. Let's start with sort of the foundational question here, and, and this isn't the purpose of your book, but I think it'll help to, to provide some framing. Uh, what is democracy? Uh, if mm -hmm. we're concerned with the future of it, uh, what is it? Sure. Uh, it turns out to be uh, more complicated of a question than we might think it at first glance, because I, I do think we use the term in, uh, in a variety of ways, not always uh, consistently. Uh, the way I would define democracy, and I, I think I... Uh, to some degree, um, follow Tocqueville here is, is I think, in terms of democracy, uh, primarily in terms of a process of government, a form of government that translates the will of the majority into public policy. Uh, and um, it, it doesn't stretch the thing too much just to equate that with uh, majority rule. Um, I, I would contrast that. Uh, with another way of thinking about democracy, which is not fundamentally illegitimate, but it is a very different approach. And, and that is to think of democracy uh, as a form of government that uh, reliably guarantees certain outcomes. One of the things that, that strikes me is we often speak about democracy uh, as something that has an intrinsic moral component to it so that the adjective democratic becomes over time sort of just a synonym for, for good or just. Uh, and a democracy becomes uh, a shorthand for the good society, however we define that. And I'm not using democracy in that term. I'm really just thinking in, that, in those terms. I'm thinking about a form of government that reliably translates the will of the majority into public policy. And I'm challenging our readers to sort of step back and, and think about that uh, and hopefully uh, think with some Christian reflection of, about that form of government. Now, there, there are some people on uh... – uh, on my side of the ideological spectrum, uh, who admittedly can be kind of insufferable, and I include myself in that loose list, at least in the, in the past, who would be quick to jump in and say, look, America's not a democracy, it's a republic. Uh, is that a distinction we need to make? Yeah, um, it would be interesting to have a conversation with, with folks who, who make that distinction, uh, because I'm not always sure what their point is. A lot of this gets down to the way that, again, the way that we define terms. When someone like James Madison talked about republics or democracies, he had something very specific uh, in mind. A, a democracy, as he understood it, 
was um, a form of government in which every eligible citizen would have participated in every major policy decision. Uh, it was something that perhaps was feasible in some very small locales uh, in the ancient world. Uh, it might have been uh, applied or exercised in some way in New England towns in the 17th and 18th century. Uh, but Madison and the other founders of the framers of the Constitution would have, would have known that such a form of government was never uh, feasible for an area of any size. Uh, and so they would have said, well, of course, we're forming a republic because to them, uh, the sort of defining distinction was that in a republic, representatives uh, have to ultimately make the policy decisions uh, that uh, govern the uh, society. So in that sense, yes, of course we are uh, a republic. But the question then becomes, how democratic is our republic? Uh, and the issue there is those representatives that um, sit in the halls of government, to what degree or how reliably are they, in fact, constrained by popular preferences? Uh, and so you would see in the 18th century discussions about uh, just how democratic the republic should be. Uh, the Jeffersonians often refer to themselves as democratic republicans. So they were trying to make a point about their uh, particular um, preferences. Uh, and of course, over time, those who favored uh, a very democratic form of a republic uh, began to call themselves the democracy. So the the uh, the party that Andrew Jackson represented uh, often didn't refer to itself as Democrats, but as, quote, the democracy. Uh, so uh, is the United States a republic instead of a democracy? Well, sort of. Uh, but does that make the most important point? Um, I don't think so. Uh, and so when I think about uh, a democracy, I'm really thinking about just how reliably uh, are uh, the um, uh, the wishes of the majority uh, implemented. Uh, and the dividing line between the, say, late 18th century and the 19th century or today uh, is not quite as stark as you might think. Uh, now, one one more sort of definitional question, and then, then we can dive into your book. Uh, when, when you draw this distinction between majority rule and, and a kind of outcome, um, can you can you maybe uh, flush that out a little bit more, uh, just because it it sounds like those aren't necessarily the same thing, right? If the majority gets what it wants, isn't that a democratic outcome? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. Uh, and so um, the, the way that I would uh, approach it and talk about this some in the book uh, is that there's, there, there's basically sort of two broad ways of, of thinking about this. One is thinking about democracy as a process. And the other is thinking about democracy as an outcome, a set of desired uh, outcomes. Uh, and so when you approach it in the first way, then uh, you have to be open to the possibility uh, that uh, majority rule outcomes will not always necessarily be just or morally defensible outcomes, but they'll be democratic. So by definition, if the majority favors it, it is a democratic outcome. The other way of approaching democracy is to say, well, uh, democracy is a system that is designed to promote justice. Uh, and outcomes that are fundamentally unjust cannot ever earn or deserve the, the adjective uh, democratic. So we use this approach all the time. We talk about democratic uh, distributions of wealth uh, or democratic degrees of opportunity in a society or democratic access to education. Uh, we're not talking about what the majority uh, favors in that moment. We're, we're really sort of using democratic as an adjective uh, that means uh, just or, uh, or fair. Uh, and, and I just uh, I, I don't think sort of um, uh, from some transcendent perspective that one or the other approaches is, is automatically the correct one. But I do th think that when we think of democracy, first and foremost, as a process, it actually helps us to think more clearly uh, about the degree to which um, uh, the American people or human beings generally, uh, when left to their own devices and free to pursue their own self-interest, necessarily promotes uh, justice for uh, the common good. Uh, and, and so there is a tension. There's just a, a tension there, um, no doubt. Uh, but I think um, the, the approach that I've recommended in the book of thinking in terms of democracy as a process uh, is, um, is something that perhaps help us actually to think more deeply about the human condition. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's also that that is a p place where the republic, not a democracy, argument has has a tiny bit of traction, uh, given that at least some of our major institutions are designed not not to directly thwart majority rule, but to slow it down. Yeah. So when I think of something like yep. the electoral college uh, or uh, or the senate. Uh, uh, as as entities that are counter majoritarian. That's right. But as Madison would say, would would say, still there to do the 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 will of the people ultimately. Yeah, ultimately, yeah. So uh, you, you you've hit the nail on the head there. I think Coyle. I, I think uh, it's a it's a somewhat subtle distinction. Uh, Madison, for example, would would have said, and I think the founders uh, generally would have said uh, that the majority must ultimately prevail uh, or you don't live uh, in a truly uh, free society. Uh, the question is sort of what about in the meantime? And as you uh, put it, there were uh, ways uh, in which the Constitution was framed to um, uh, slow down the democratic process uh, and to uh, create opportunities uh, for sober and sedate reflection, as, as sometimes they would uh, would put it, to hopefully um, perhaps structure the government in such a way that the passions of the people uh, weren't given immediate reign. Uh, and the hope would be that over time, uh, prudence and reason and even virtue to some degree uh, would um, would rise to, to the fore. Sort of the exact opposite of how Twitter works these days, right? <laughs> absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh so obviously, if there's a concern that the uh, the will of the people not be immediately translated into policy, uh, there there must be some concern over human character, uh, which kind of raises the question: uh, uh, Where does the character of a people fit into this democratic process? Uh, and and maybe just asking it that way sort of gives away the answer. But but uh, what is the place of character in all of this? That's a great question, uh, Cole, and it's really the question that I wrestle with uh, more than any other uh, in the book. Uh, I think there are many uh, deeply important questions that we might ask about uh, any democratic society, uh, but I actually think one of the most important, if not the most important, is to ask what are the underlying assumptions about human nature that animates uh, a particular uh, democratic society? Uh, and um, I've been very much sort of uh, motivated or inspired by a very simple uh, distinction that uh, C.S. Lewis once made in one of his uh, lesser known essays, in which he said, and I'm sort of paraphrasing uh, here, but I'm not too far from the original. He said that there are essentially two reasons that one might uh, support majority rule uh, or be uh, in favor of uh, democracy. He said, on the one hand, uh, you might uh, think that individuals are so wise and so good uh, that the common good suffers when everyone's voice isn't heard, uh, that uh, everyone is so wise and so good that they uh, deserve uh, to be heard and for their input uh, to be um, uh, taken in into account. Um, he said that is he believes the false romantic uh, way of thinking about democracy. Uh, the other, which he endorsed, uh, was to start from the assumption that men and women are not uh, by nature wise and good. He actually used the term wicked, uh, that we are so wicked that none of us can be trusted to exercise power over uh, other uh, citizens. Uh, and Lewis went on to say that he thought that that was the true ground uh, upon which democracy should rest. So I would just all boil it down. My summary of that would be we can believe in democracy because we have faith in human nature or we can advocate democracy because we don't have any faith in human nature. Uh, and the, the difference uh, is, is not always on the surface immediately uh, apparent, uh, but I think over time uh, has an enormous, um, potentially enormous implications for the way that uh, democratic society um, unfolds and the degree to which it does, in fact, promote wise and just outcomes. Uh, so that question is, is, is enormously important and, and also complex.
Well, and, and doesn't that seem a little counterintuitive, though? Should we have faith in democracy if people are bad? Right? I mean, if, if people are bad, why would we give them power? Shouldn't, shouldn't we take it away from the people and focus the, you know, find some virtuous individual, some philosopher king out there, uh, find some John Adams uh, and put him in charge? Sure. Well, I, the first response I have to the, the question uh, would be that we should never have faith in democracy, period. Um, one of the distinctions that I play around with uh, in the book is um, uh, a, a distinction made by the late uh, Irving Kristol, a conservative um, thinker from the mid-20th century. Uh, and he made a distinction between what he called uh, a democratic philosophy and democratic faith. Democratic faith, as he put it, was this belief that belief that um, uh, a truly democratic society, how, whatever that means, will reliably promote uh, democratic, excuse me, just and, and good uh, outcomes. Uh, a democratic philosophy, uh, Crystal said, uh, actually doesn't think of democracy in and of itself as ultimate, but starts from some more foundational set of moral convictions. And is able to think about majority rule in terms of the strengths and weaknesses, the just and unjust uh, kinds of outcomes that it might uh, promote. So the first response then is let's not have faith in democracy uh, at all. But then let's go back to your question, which I think is a good one, is if we have a somewhat skeptical understanding of human nature, why would we uh, want to um, uh, subject ourselves to majority uh, rule? Well, I think part of the answer might begin by taking seriously the idea of, uh, of original sin, which I talk about quite a bit uh, in the book. Um, to think about original sin from sort of traditional uh, Orthodox Christian uh, perspectives, it would be the idea, of course, that each of us, uh, has, we basically come into the world with certain overruling uh, desires, uh, we have an overruling desire to rule ourselves uh, and to please ourselves. Uh, and this is sort of uh, at the heart of our uh, of our nature. It doesn't preclude us from uh, at times showing great courage or compassion uh, or uh, other kinds of uh, classical or Christian virtues. But it does say that our default mode is self-interest. Uh, that's what's typically uh, in the driver's seat. If we take. Uh, original sin seriously. We actually are going to believe that that touches everyone and everything. One of the ways I think about this is to go back to uh, the classical observation by the um, um, Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who famously said that the line between good and evil doesn't actually run between nation states or separating political parties or classes or castes. Uh, it actually runs or passes, as he puts it, right through every human heart. So if we take seriously that idea, that, by the way, is the, is the classical expression of original sin, I think. If we take that seriously, uh, then the line between good and evil runs uh, within that uh, potential authoritarian leader uh, or that supposedly uh, virtuous philosopher king. Uh, it runs through every political movement, every political party, every political leader. So given that, uh, the argument then would be uh, disseminating power as broadly as possible, avoiding the concentration of power, might be the best way to mitigate the abuse of power, uh, but never eliminate it uh, would, would be uh, the qualification that we have uh, to make. I think from uh, a Christian perspective, when we take original sin seriously, we just come back against the idea that there is no way of structuring uh, the exercise of power in a society uh, that is uh, fail-safe or foolproof. Uh, the potential for abuse, the potential for injustice is always there. And so what we're doing is we're making relative distinctions, uh, and we're saying all things equal. Uh, the potential for injustice is mitigated somewhat uh, by the broad distribution of power uh, as opposed to its concentration. Yeah, and that's a... Uh... Uh, I mean, that, that's the, the heart of the first, what, half of the Federalist Papers, right, is, is that exact argument stretched from Federalist 10 to, to Federalist 51, uh, which, uh, which is one of the, the points that you dig into in the, in the first part of your book. Uh, so the, the three kind of characters that your book revolves around 
or uh, James Madison, Andrew Jackson, and Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, so just kind of the the, the practical uh, you know NPR interview side of this. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, why'd you pick those three? Uh, obviously, uh, an analysis of America from the perspective of other founding fathers would look very different. I think the example I gave you on the outline was a uh, uh, Thomas Paine, John Calhoun, and Ralph Waldo Emerson. Right, yeah. that, that would give us a very different people uh, if we were looking through those guys. Or, or you know, pick you know uh, John Adams, George Washington, and Alexander Hamilton. So, so sure. why uh, why Madison, Jackson, and Tocqueville? Well, the 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 basic answer would be I, th- I think Madison uh, is just such an instrumental figure uh, in the construction of the Constitution. Um, not only um, significant uh, in the debates at Philadelphia, but of course uh, in, instrumental in the ratification debates through his contributions to the Federalist uh, essays. Sure. Um, probably among the men who gathered uh, at Philadelphia in 1787, the one who had done uh, the most thinking, the, the, the most research um, uh, into uh, the, the way to structure a, a government that would um, be uh, Republican in its effectiveness uh, and last, ideally, for some period of time. Uh, so I just start with Madison is, you know, he's often called the father of the Constitution. That's maybe a little bit simplistic, but his, his contribution was great. Uh, and he was a systematic and deep, deep thinker. Uh, and uh, to, to be very honest, I've always loved Federalist 10 and 51, they're two of my most favorite uh, pieces of, uh, of writing in American history. Uh, and I love Madison for his ability to take really sort of profound ideas uh, and sometimes really dis- to d- distill them into uh, their essence. Uh, the m- example that comes to mind immediately uh, would be from Federalist 51, where Madison says, if a majority be united by a common interest, the rights of the majority of the minority will be insecure. Uh, one sentence, uh, which says just this intractable reality uh, that the framers of the Constitution wrestled with and tried to uh, uh, safeguard as much as possible uh, the people against uh, that reality. So I chose Madison for that reason. I, I chose Jackson. And, you know, uh, I should step back and say I, I really wanted uh, the book We the Fallen People to be accessible to as broad an audience as possible. Um, that doesn't mean it's ever going to be made into a movie. I'm pretty sure that's not <laughs> going to happen. Uh, but I, I wanted to write it not just for academics. I really wanted to write something that I could hand to someone I would meet at church or someone I would meet in other social settings and, and believe that they could uh, find it engaging, find it important, important, find it accessible. So I really wanted to focus on a, a few key individuals. So Madison was one. Uh, and then Andrew Jackson. Uh, who in many ways uh, embodied uh, what I call the great reversal, the kind of really uh, paradigm-changing way of thinking about uh, human nature, at least as it related uh, to the public square and to uh, political uh, life in the country. Uh, And it didn't hurt that he's an incredibly colorful character (laughs) and a very polarizing uh, figure uh, as well. The third one is the one, in some sense, that it's a little bit, uh, more of the of the odd choice, uh, and, and that would be Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, I chose him. Uh, of course, he's he's not uh, uh, an American. He's not a citizen of the United States. Um, but I would argue, and I think many uh, theorists would agree, that uh, he may well be the most profound commentator on American political life and culture um, that has has ever uh, put his thoughts to paper. Uh, and I just believe that uh, his work, uh, Democracy in America, um, is just so rich and so profound in so many ways uh, that it would be um, a tragedy not to to bring him into the conversation. And I was pretty much convinced that even though uh, if you're a well-educated person, you should at least recognize the name Alexis de Tocqueville. You're supposed to you know, pretend like you have some sense of what he thought. But I think almost no one reads Tocqueville. So so I thought that there was, you know, a, a contribution to be made in just trying to identify some of the key observations that he made uh, in relating them to a, a broader audience uh, as we try to think um, somewhat with with some Christian insight uh, into um, uh, public life in America. And I'll, I'll admit I, I am part of the problem there. Uh, I have read Tocqueville. 
But in mm. my American political theory class, I don't assign him. Mm. And I, I, I spend time every semester angsting over that. So like, oh, man, it's so good. It's the best thing that's been written about American government. He's not an American. So does that count as American political theory? You know, uh, that's that's tricky. Yeah, a- absolutely. I can see why in your situation that he might not um, make the cut. I, I try to argue in the book that uh, the fact that he's not American becomes actually one of um, his his strengths. Uh, he, he is writing to some degree as an outsider yeah. and perhaps sees some things that uh, Americans just were, were not able to see. Yeah, I, I do try to shame my students into reading it on their own and say that if you're a political scientist, you should read it. And uh, you shouldn't feel comfortable about that diploma if you haven't read it You know, by the time you graduate. Uh, and then I don't assign it. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, and, and 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 again, obviously those are uh, the uh, those are those are three critical figures. Uh, I, I love Madison, um, uh, Jackson. I, I love teaching Jackson. Maybe I should say that <laughs> he is he is certainly the most fun president to talk about. Uh, I don't know if that will continue to be true in the wake of Donald Trump, but uh, mm-hmm. so, someday uh, maybe that'll change. Uh, and then Tocqueville, yeah, is is fantastic. Uh, so, uh, what is this? Uh, what is this great, uh, great revolution in the self-perception of, of Americans that Jackson is symbolic of? That's that's kind of the hinge point of your book, right? Uh, that's uh, the the big picture here. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I structured the book in such a way uh, that I hoped it would help uh, readers be more self-aware of uh, the assumptions that we bring to American democracy today. And I thought that the best way to do that was simply to take readers back to a time before those assumptions had become the dominant ones in the culture. Uh, and so you're right. Pretty much the first half of the book is, is simply trying to um, uh, follow uh, the r- dramatic changes in their saying of human nature that would distinguish the, the world of the late 18th century from the uh, period by the time that Andrew Jackson becomes president uh, in the late 1820s. So to, just to summarize really briefly. While I don't uh, I don't try to argue that the um, delegates to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia were um, all born again Christians or that they were being motivated explicitly by uh, Christian uh, doctrinal beliefs about uh, humankind. Uh, But I do argue that their understanding of human nature was absolutely uh, consistent with it was reconcilable with uh, orthodox understanding. Uh, of a fallen humanity that uh, bears the mark of original sin. Uh, so the, the framers would basically have said, yeah, we're, we're mostly uh, selfish. Uh, we aspire to something greater often and are capable from time to time of acts of great self-denial or sacrifice. But we are fundamentally uh, selfish. Uh, self-interest is in the driving seat. Passion uh, more often guides us than, than reason uh, or even a kind of prudential self-interest. Um, all of this makes uh, popular government uh, somewhat uh, perilous. But you always want to treat the framers as as complicated as they were. Uh, as Madison says, unless you have some faith uh, in human nature, some optimistic hope for the ability uh, of individuals to make wise choices, you you wouldn't support a republic, uh, actually, uh, even either. Uh, And so there is some kind of uh, compliment being paid to the human condition, but leavened with a lot of sort of realistic belief in in our uh, inclination to selfishness. And so, you know, all of the checks and balances that we uh, learn in junior high, uh, if if we learned about them, uh, all of those, the divisions of powers, the checks and balances in the Constitution, they they only really make sense flowing out of uh, the idea that Men and women are uh, willing to um, uh, wreak injustice on others at times uh, to pursue their own interests. Uh, the, the idea that power uh, is always dangerous, is always a threat to liberty, flows directly out of this understanding of human nature. And then by the time that you get to Andrew Jackson, a lot has transpired. I'm, and I'm not arguing that Jackson by himself somehow uh, affects this change, but he really nicely encapsulates it. It's it's. Uh, at least in the public square, a rhetoric that regularly pays homage to the people uh, that assumes that majority decisions uh, in each individual majority decision carries with it a kind of moral authority uh, that uh, is is inescapable. And Jackson himself 
uh, becomes very good uh, at paying tribute to the to the people uh, in his public uh, addresses and his presidential uh, addresses. Uh, he begins to speak of the people as being sort of innately good, uh, as um, uncorruptible or incorruptible, uh, always being guided by good sense. Uh, he basically says, you know, as long as uh, the, the majority continues to uh, sort of pursue their innate, just uh, temperament and character, that the country will always be safe. Uh, and so these are ways of talking uh, about uh, human nature and, and the public generally that are so ubiquitous uh, today that we really don't think about them. Uh, but when we put them alongside some of the things that the framers are saying about human nature, uh, the difference is really stark. And that's really what I wanted readers uh, to see. How, though, is that different from, say, George Washington trying to emulate Cincinnatus? How is that different from the the sort of ideal of virtue that the framers so obviously hold. I mean, as, as you pointed out, is it just the, is it just the absence of the negative of the, the negative side of it? Yeah. So, I mean, so, so let's start with the, the revolutionary generation. Um, so many of the most prominent founders did speak about virtue um, uh, over and over and, and over again. But I think it's important as much as possible to situate their discussions of virtue uh, in in a broader context. First of all, they they often spoke about uh, virtue bemoaning its its shortage, uh, <laughs> sure. you know. Uh, and so as, as one scholar has put it, it, it's it's fair to think of the Constitutional Convention emerging in the sense of a crisis of virtue that that as much as uh, prominent founders were speaking about virtue, they looked around their society and they said, we're, we're characterized by a dearth of virtue. Uh, one of the ways in which I think the, the framers uh, understanding of human nature wasn't orthodox or wasn't consistent with uh, traditional Christian understandings is they did believe that it was possible for someone through great effort, sort of heroic sorts of self-denial uh, to train oneself uh, to live uh, virtuously. Um, it was never going to be widespread. Uh, it required heroic kinds of constant uh, discipline, uh, but they would have said occasionally it was possible. Um, uh, John Adams' uh, wife, Abigail, actually writes to one of their grown sons, and she's exhorting her son to virtue. Uh, it's not John Quincy. Uh, and um, she likens the development of virtue to the Greek myth of Sisyphus, who's rolling, rolling this boulder up the side of a hill, and it always sort of falls down just before he gets to the top. Uh, so it's this idea that you're constantly struggling, and, and the rare individual may have some success at that. Um, by the time you get to the Jacksonian period, there's much less of that discussion. I don't want to overstate the case. I don't want to overstate the, uh, the distinction. But increasingly, uh, men like Jackson and many others – uh, are speaking to the people as if that virtue is innate, not something, not a trait that cuts against the grain of their nature, uh, but is rather an expression uh, of their of their nature. Uh, and that's something that Tocqueville really picks up on. I mean, he's sort of sarcastic in the way he says it, that, you know, you listen to your typical uh, political speech in Jacksonian America, and it's just this one, according to Tocqueville, uninterrupted uh, tribute to the innate virtues of the electorate. Uh, with the idea that uh, nothing need be done to uh, improve upon perfection. Yeah, uh, so sort of virtue as who we are rather than virtue as the necessary corrective to who we are. Correct. Uh, well, how, how then, uh, uh, so the, the way I have the question on the outline, how does Andrew Jackson then take that virtuous democratic spirit uh, and end up, you know, with the trail of tears or smashing the bank or doing the things that now we look back and we're like, ah, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. I, well, I know how I feel about the trail of tears, the, the bank thing I'm more on sure. the fence about. Yeah. I don't know that I have real thoughts about the first bank of America. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, let's talk about the bank just a, a little bit, uh, because I think it's uh, it's an interesting story and it's a revealing story. Uh, the, the bank of the United States, uh, when um, Andrew Jackson becomes president, is uh, the largest corporation in in North America. And, and so I think that's one way to think about it. It's just it's sort of emblematic in a certain sense uh, of the concentration of uh, financial power. 
it, it exists by the creation of the United States Congress. It had been chartered. There had been one previous uh, Bank of the United States chartered uh, during the first administration of George Washington. It had actually been really sort of designed, inspired by Alexander Hamilton, then Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, this was a kind of reincarnation of that bank that um, uh, took place uh, during the War of 1812. Uh, and this second bank of the United States uh, was um, uh, something that, for whatever reason, I'm not always in confident that I know why, uh, Andrew Jackson becomes very suspicious of um, even before he becomes president uh, of the United States. Uh, and over time, uh, becomes um, convinced also that the bank is in a very uh, intentional way uh, sort of uh, opposing his reelection. Uh, and for uh, other reasons that we won't go into here uh, right now, uh, he does uh, decide uh, that this, this concentration of power is really dangerous. It's a threat to American liberty and it has to be destroyed. Uh, the problem is that not enough congressmen agree with him. Uh, there have been various uh, committee investigations and conversations in both chambers of the of the Congress during uh, Jackson's first uh, administration that basically decides, well, you know, there are some changes to the charter of the bank that might be made, uh, but we're not convinced that the bank is a threat to uh, the economy, much less the larger country. We're actually pretty uh, happy uh, with the security of uh, governmental deposits uh, in the bank and so forth. Uh, and in other words, uh, a lot of uh, the Congress disagrees with Jackson, including a lot of those who would have considered them sort of Jackson followers, uh, sort of proto-Democrats as the Democratic Party is beginning to, to form. And from Jackson's point of view, the fact that uh, Congress disagrees with him is just evidence that they have been corrupted by the bank. One of the things I say about um, – uh, Jackson, and I believe this with all my heart, even though uh, I'm a native Tennessean, as, as Jackson was, uh, I, I've read, I think, somewhere between four and 5,000 pages of Jackson's correspondence. I have never come across him ever admitting uh, to a moral failure. Uh, anyone who disagreed with him uh, was dishonorable. I mean, if they disagreed with him on any issue, it was for nefarious reasons. It was because of a corrupt agenda. It was it, it wasn't even that they could be mistaken, but honorably mistaken. They, they were malevolent. Uh, and so he is convinced that um, the only reason there's opposition to his opposition to the bank is that the bank is uh, widely bribing uh, congressmen, corrupting their integrity. Uh, and so he determines to uh, destroy the bank. And when the bank is rechartered, uh, or it's when its charter is renewed by Congress, uh, he vetoes uh, that um, that measure. And it's very interesting, uh, the sort of the grounds that he explains um, uh, for justifying uh, that. One, he says there's a lot of uh, foreign influence that controls the bank uh, and that in time of war, the bank would become a fifth column, a, a kind of enemy within our midst that would uh, help to uh, uh, destroy uh, American liberty and lead to our defeat uh, in war. Uh, and the reality is, if you look at the charter of the of the bank, no one who uh, was not a citizen of the United States had any voting rights or any access, could not qualify as an officer of the bank of any way. Uh, and so it's just not really possible to envision uh, what he was um, uh, worried about as, as being legitimate. Uh, but that's one of the uh, things that he mentioned uh, he said it was unconstitutional, even though the United States Supreme Court had ruled it constitutional two two times before this. Uh, and Jackson justified it by saying that every officer of the United States government vows to uphold the Constitution as he personally understands the Constitution, not as anyone else understands uh, the Constitution. Uh, and he basically, uh, he, he, he uh, as the president of the United States uh, says that, he is going to uphold the Constitution as he alone understands it. Uh, and, and so if we just stop and think about that for a moment, part of what Jackson is doing uh, is beginning to expand the power of the executive branch in pretty dramatic, uh, pretty dramatic ways. Uh, in the midst of this fight over the bank war, uh, he's going to end up firing two different secretaries of the Treasury. Uh, he wants to uh, take any power of the bank uh, to mischief away. Uh, and so once he vetoes its recharter, he then wants to withdraw all of the federal monies from the bank, 
But according to the uh, act of Congress that had created the bank, only the secretary of the treasury could withdraw the monies, federal uh, monies. Uh, and basically Jackson orders two successive secretary of the treasuries to withdraw the money. And when they say, I, I don't think that's a wise uh, course, he fires them. Uh, and so we, we really see Jackson uh, using uh, aggressively the power of the presidency. We see him expanding the power of the presidency. Uh, and what strikes me is his motive uh, or the way that he justifies that. He justifies that uh, on the grounds that he alone uh, can be trusted uh, to promote the interests of the people. Uh, in fact, in essence, he is uh, telling the, the nation uh, that Congress has been corrupted, uh, that they are being threatened by what Jackson calls a monster, the monster, uh, and that he alone can save them. And so I actually think of Jackson, we can overdraw this and I don't want to, but uh, he uh, sets the expansion of the executive branch uh, on on course. Um, of course, it's grown dramatically since then. But the first president to really expand the power of the executive was Jackson. And he does so uh, because uh, he fears the concentration of power elsewhere. Uh, and I, I see a great deal of irony um, uh, in that. But then Jackson saw himself always as virtuous, didn't believe that he had ever made a moral uh, mistake. Uh, and so um, I don't think it ever dawned on him that his exercising such power could be a threat to anyone. Well, and, and he makes the argument that he is the only individual in the national government who is elected by everyone. Right? He is he is the voice of the people. The people are virtuous. Therefore, Certainly as president, I mean, as general, of course, you have a different kind yep. of virtue. But Yeah, no, that's a great point, uh, Coyle. You're exactly right. And he really is the first president to do that. Yeah. When he um, vetoes the renewal of the bank in the summer of 1832, he then has to be a candidate for re-election that fall. Uh, and he uh, gladly uh, accepts that election being framed as a referendum on his on his veto of the bank. And when he is uh, re-elected to a second term. Uh, he basically says the people have spoken. Uh, and as he tells one of those secretaries that he then later fires, that his policy, meaning Jackson's policy, uh, has been uh, affirmed by the highest power known on Earth. Uh, and so uh, he really sets a tone that, again, that we take for granted today. Uh, but of thinking of um, the support of the, the people on a particular measure uh, is lending to whatever the uh, issue is uh, a kind of unassailable moral authority. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember if you go into this in the book or not, but uh, uh, that's the point where control of the bureaucracy right, becomes uh, uh, tied also to the the vote of the American people, and Jackson just has to drain the swamp uh, to get all of the, uh, uh, the the people who his predecessor had appointed out. Uh, because they've they voted for him, and he can't have all these, you know, John Quincy Adams appointees in there, mm -hmm. mucking things up. Where previous presidents had been, uh, Willings maybe not quite the right word. They didn't like it, but if you were doing your job, even if you were appointed by the guy from the other party, you, you stayed around. You know, you got yeah. to keep your your spot. Uh, or Jefferson just eliminates your spot, but not because <laughs> of your party, right? Um, yeah, uh, like you said, Jackson's Jackson's the great uh, the, the great example of of this this uh, on the political version of this new view of the American people. Um, uh, do you want to talk about the Trail of Tears at all? You you do have a chapter on that also. Well, yeah, I do, and, and I, actually, I won't go into a lot of detail about that right now, except to um, uh, to, to say uh, that I, I think one of the most important things that we can do when we think about the Trail of Tears is simply to back away so that our focus becomes a little bit broader so that we can uh, observe that uh, the Trail of Tears unfolds precisely at the time uh, that the um, uh, American democracy is becoming ever more uh, fully developed uh, in a, um, or excuse me, I should say on a foundation of a very positive understanding of human nature. Uh, and, and more than anything, that's really what I hope readers would see is the kind of irony uh, of um, the Trail of Tears unfolding exactly at the time that Americans are more and more paying tribute to their innate virtue. Uh, and one of the things I argue about it, which is uh, jarring to our ears to hear, but I, I wanted to 
uh, argue uh, strongly uh, that the entire policy of Native American removal was democratic, not democratic in the sense of being just because I'm not using it in that the word in that sense, democratic in the sense that it commanded pretty broad popular support. Right. Uh yeah, yeah. Uh, you uh, you cite I think you I think you cite the book Jackson Land, uh, which yes. sort of takes that principle and and really it's a great great book. Uh, uh, points out the further irony that the president of the the Cherokee uh, Ross I think his name was yes uh-huh. uh, was a decorated war hero who had fought under Jackson in the Indian Wars. Absolutely. So I mean the yeah. irony kind of abounds throughout this whole yeah. this whole book. Uh, absolutely, and one of the things that the Cherokee were very good at doing in their various uh, appeals to Congress and the pamphlets that they published and so forth uh, was constantly saying, you know, um, uh, there are these values that you claim to uphold that are a part of the way Americans want to define themselves. And we are so um, uh, optimistic that you will, in fact, uh, execute those principles that you profess to to uphold. So they're they're constantly appealing to. Uh, the uh, uh, American political uh, tradition, uh, believing that it is on their side, uh, but of course, uh, ultimately without uh, effect. Well, we're uh, we're we're coming up on on time here. Uh, we we've talked about Madison, we've talked about Jackson, uh, uh, we've talked a little bit about Tocqueville, but uh, m- maybe you could give us just a, a few words about Tocqueville and what he brings into this conversation. Uh, why, why do we turn to this Frenchman for an analysis of, uh, of American democracy? Yeah, so I, I, uh, th- I think Tocqueville is uh, a trenchant voice, and, and there's so much that I could say about him. I think part of what makes him um, a source of insight is that he is an outsider. He's French. He's not American. He is aristocratic. Uh, he is not a, a, a commoner. Uh, but I think that perspective often allowed him – uh, to see things that uh, perhaps others uh, would not see. One of the things that Tocqueville does is he does apply this understanding of democracy simply uh, as a, um, uh, a process of government. He actually thinks of democracy as uh, describing a, a, what he calls the entire social state uh, of, a, of a people. Uh, but in the realm of, uh, of politics, he's, he really just equates it with majority rule. And then he goes on just to make a strong argument that majority rule is morally indeterminate. That, to me, is perhaps the most important takeaway from democracy in America. Uh, majority rule is uh, morally indeterminate. Um, he develops that in a variety of, of ways. But the concept that probably we associate with him most in that regard is this idea of the tyranny of the majority. Uh, so he's just driving home the idea. Uh, that um, majority rule can be uh, authoritarian, it can be oppressive uh, and unjust, doesn't have to be uh, at all, uh, but he is always holding forth to his readers the idea that the range of outcomes of the rise of democracy is enormous. So the very last sentence of this maybe 900-page book, depending upon the edition, the very last sentence uh, says that democracy can result uh, in liberty or tyranny, civilization or barbarism, mir- uh, misery or prosperity. Uh, and so uh, it's an incredibly sobering uh, take on American democracy uh, that tells us that democracy will prevail, but the kind of democracy that will prevail and whether it is one that does promote a just and good society is always, always uncertain. Uh, and so he sort of challenges us to constantly be thinking uh, about uh, the kind of democracy that obtains in any moment in time uh, and what we might be doing uh, to promote a relatively you know, healthier and, and more just uh, version. Yeah, and he, uh, well, he makes the, the interesting point. I think this is on the other end of his book uh, in, the, in the introduction or first chapter. I forget where. Uh, democracy is coming. Right. It, it is it is the wave of the future. Mm-hmm. And if we are not prepared for it, we're going to get all of the negatives with none of the positives. Yeah. Uh, if, if we don't have the uh, the institutions and associations in place uh, to, to sort of ride the wave. Uh, and, and of course, he has, you know, Napoleon and the reign of terror in the back of his mind. But uh, uh, we, we need to be aware of what it is and the strengths and weaknesses. Otherwise, 
we're, we're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. So the question for Tocqueville is never will democracy prevail? He, he really believes it's the future of the Western world, at least. Oh, sure. The question, question is what kind of democracy? So you're exactly, exactly right. Well, and I think the last couple of hundred years have, have borne his words out pretty uh, pretty resoundingly. Uh, but I like Tocqueville, so <laughs> maybe not the most unbiased source. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Doctor McKenzie, is there anything else you would like our listeners to know uh, about your book, uh, about the founding generation, or the – is there a name for that second generation, the the, the Jackson and the Yeah, Clay I don't have Calhoun? a good name for that. I'm not sure. Uh, if there is, I, I didn't come across it. We, uh, we need we, we need one for them. You know, we the, need one. So if you can come up with one, I'll uh, I'll uh, borrow it from you. Uh, the only other thing I would 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 add is I would just mention to your readers uh, that um, that I did very much write the book um, with uh, my own Christian convictions in mind. I wanted the book to be accessible broadly to to, to readers regardless of of their faith, but I I, I do and did continue to have a deep burden for uh, the church. And so I, I hope that uh, American Christians would find uh, something, uh, at least in terms of food for thought, that might challenge them to think anew about our circumstances. Uh, and I would just add that even though um, eight, uh, 80 percent, at least of the book, is focused on the past, that I do conclude with a couple of chapters where I try to think out loud with the readers about what this might mean uh, for uh, for us today. Uh, and I hope that they would find something uh, worthwhile there. Dr. McKenzie, thank you so much for writing this book, and thank you for taking time to come on the show. Uh, it's a great book, good conversation. Uh, listeners, please go pick it up and read it. Well, Cole, thank you so much for uh, having me on, and it was really a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting ChristianHumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash City of Man podcast, or get in touch with us at City of Man podcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island and the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me as I went a walk in that ribbon of highway.